When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Friday Five, my weekly topical and varied look at what's going on in the world of well-being, combined with a brilliant and timely podcast guest. And today I'm joined by the award-winning journalist, parenting columnist and host of the brilliant Postcards from Midlife podcast, Lorraine Candy. Well, Lorraine has recently written a book. It's called Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Will Know, which chronicles not only her experience as a mother of four, three girls, one boy, but also the countless interviews she's conducted throughout her time writing about parenting. But first, something that caught my eye in the news this week was a study looking at the effects of our well-being from working from home. Many of you may have seen my posts on Instagram earlier this week about the benefits of wearing loungewear when working from home, as I'm doing at the moment out here in Kenya. Well, yes, there are benefits, but there's also a downside. According to this study, almost one in three people who work from home in the UK say it makes them feel lonely. Yeah, the research found that 29% of the population say they're lonely, with 20% of people feeling isolated and attributing that to working from home. Just over a quarter of those who are lonely, or about 4 million of us, say their loneliness has seriously affected their mental health. And that was according to a survey of over a thousand UK adults. Working from home apparently has inevitably increased as a result of the COVID crisis. And while for many it means more time with family, it clearly also adds to isolation for others. Staying connected with friends and family is important for mental health. And one in four adults admit loneliness has had a seriously negative effect on our mental health. And that was a survey commissioned by the online games publisher Marmalade Game Studio carried out in November 2021. So talking about families and mental health, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I am delighted to be joined by the award-winning columnist Lorraine Candy, whose wise words on parenting have struck a chord with so many. Now, she has interviewed countless experts over the many years of her writing, including neuroscientists, psychotherapists, psychologists and other experts with know-how about how best to parent our teens. 
and stay sane along the way. Well, as this is our Mother's Day episode, I thought she would make the perfect guest. And we have nine children between us. So I do hope that you enjoy this candid conversation about motherhood, the challenges and the joys, with plenty of advice about how we can support our teens in our life, whether they're our children, grandchildren, stepchildren, godchildren, or even nephews and nieces. So let's crack on and hear just what she has to say. So a very warm welcome, Lorraine. It's nice to have you on my podcast, having been a guest on your podcast recently. So welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I hope I can be helpful and practical for your listeners because your your podcast is so brilliantly useful. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. And of course, it's very timely for those who are listening in real time, because this is indeed our Mother's Day episode. And I wanted to start really by asking how parenting uh, came to be such a focus of your journalism. Well, I think obviously for the last 30 years, I've worked in more or less in women's magazines. So my audience is almost all female. My community is almost all female. So as I've aged, they've kind of aged with me and we kind of all had our children all at the same time. And it just struck me that sometimes we weren't really writing about the kind of real side of parenting and that not really the extreme things that were happening um, as a mum, but all the kind of normal day-to-day ordinary stuff. And it really became, I was just fascinated by that as a a trained journalist. I've been a journalist since I was 16, worked on um, the Wimbledon News and the Cornish Times. So my job in life is just to observe, be curious and ask questions. And I realised that I had access to some great experts as a journalist and I I thought, well, you know, this could be helpful for women if I can ask the ordinary questions about our ordinary day-to-day life and I can write about it. I mean, that's my that's my only skill. I don't have any qualifications. So um, I, I wrote a column in the Daily Mail. I wrote a column in the Sunday Times magazine and I, I answered questions. It's quite a heavy um, part of my social media. And obviously, I edited magazines where we talked about motherhood occasionally as well. So it felt like, a, you know, I was trying to do a service at the same time as explore things. Um, and obviously answer some of my own questions because I had the access to the experts. Yeah, fascinating. Now, I mentioned that we've got nine children between us. Um, Who do you have? What what sexes and what ages? Well, I have four children. They are 19, 18, 15 and nearly 11. So uh, three girls and a boy. You would think the boy is the last one. He's not. He's number three. So um, yes, so there's 10 years between the first and the last. I have my first at 33 and my last at 43. Gosh, so you have a whole hormonally driven household. And I mean, to have three teenage girls, well, two teenage girls and one soon to be, that is quite a challenge. And I guess your latest book is all about mothering teenage girls. What are your kind of unique challenges for this stage of life? Well, I mean, the book is useful. The experts bit in the book is useful for all parenting, all adolescents. But what struck me with teenage girls was this kind of slightly... I suppose, sort of self-righteous rejection of, of mum. I, I, they weren't doing it to dad. They were suddenly just sort of really dismissive <laughs> of me. And, you know, I'd ha- I've had a big career, worked in fashion, and they, they just seemed to think I, I 
label myself the superhero moron mum. Everything I said was stupid. Everything I did was ridiculous and all sorts of things like that where they were very funny. I mean, they're, they're amazing, my girls. They're really amazing. I'm so proud of them. But, you know, this, this thing that happens between mums and daughters is, is quite unique. You need to be rejected and they seem to do it in quite a cruel, dismissive way. And the other thing I noticed was that I was entering my perimenopause at exactly the same time as they were becoming adolescents, as they were entering puberty. And I was going through all these hormonal fluctuations. They were going through all these hormonal fluctuations. And I just thought everyone writes about the rage of teenage girls and their hormones. But, you know, we don't talk about mums at the same time and you know this is this is a household of female hormones going up and down and there's got to be an easier way to navigate that and I found quite a lot of humor you have to find humor in your days I mean they 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 kind of go into your bathroom like locusts and take everything out you'll never have tweezers you'll never have any kind of nice mascara or any kind of special shampoo they take everything and then they say constantly when you question them what's wrong with you what's wrong with you and I just thought what is wrong with me? And then I realise nothing's wrong with me. And there's actually, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just just part of our life's journey, parenting teenage girls. You know, you'll say, can you clear up all the plates? Could you just maybe not leave all those cups and saucers and things in your in your room? And, and they'll say, oh, for God's sake, why do you spoil everything? What's wrong with you? And I thought that really just, <laughs> it was worth exploring that and adding some humour because a lot of mums uh. were saying to me, this rejection is horrific. I'm finding it really hard to deal with. Am I alone? Have I done something to upset her? Are we never going to be close again? And what I also discovered, and, and you all know this from your work, Liz, is that the teenage brain is basically being dismantled from the age of 12 right the way through, actually, to the age of 25. And there's so much new neuroscience around how their emotions affected um, because of the, the way the synapses are working and being reworked and which bits of the brain. It's basically in scaffolding for many, many years and obviously we're kind of expecting them to understand that their rooms must be tidy or that you know if they can't find a pen they can't do their revision they can't do their homework if they lose their keys they won't be able to get in and actually sometimes their brain is just not capable of doing all of that and I found myself feeling a failure as a parent when actually it wasn't anything to do with me and it was perfectly normal adolescent development and it wasn't really anything to do with them either this their, their thinking is so different they're so illogical because the bits of the brain that are logical aren't really develop they can do some things and they can't do others and they're developing all the time and I thought we haven't really talked about how that works in normal ordinary you know we look at it in extreme situations when perhaps girls are experiencing mental health issues or eating disorders but we don't look at how it affects your normal day-to-day -day situation when you're all raging around shouting at each other. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And having been on the receiving end of many an eye roll, when I talk about even just the most simple, basic things and, you know, almost sort of common courtesy, you know, it's, it's great to hear another mum talk about that. But it's fascinating, the research that you've included in your book. And I know that you've spoken to neuroscientists about the teenage brain Talk us through what is happening, because I hadn't realized that there is this kind of physical, neurological disconnect that means that, well, of course, they lose their bus pass and they forget their keys. You know, I mean, what's going on there? Well, different parts of the brain are developing at different times. So we used to think, the science used to be that the brain is sort of set by eight to 10 years old, and then it doesn't really change much. But actually about four or five years ago, they discovered there's, there's 
unbelievable upheaval. It's completely taken apart and rebuilt and all the hormones um, are flooding in. So the logic bits of the brain, the risk bit of the brain, it develops after uh, the emotion bit. So you think, well, why are they so emotional? Well, they are because that bit of the brain is better at that at that time of their lives. And what we also, what I also discovered when I interviewed neuroscientists and looked at the research is that we are, it happens at very different paces for everybody. So, you, you know, there's this idea that what works for one daughter will work for the other daughter, but it won't because her brain's developing in a slightly different um, place. There's a brilliant book called The Dandelion and the Orchid by um, Dr. Thomas Boyce. He's an eminent psychiatrist and he looks at this as well. And he tells the story in the book of a, of a mum who brought in four brothers very close in age. And so she said, these, these three are all right, but there's something wrong with this one. And I've treated them the same. So what, what's happening? And what <laughs> he discovered was you, you, you sort of broadly fall into those two categories as your brain develops you're either a strong sturdy dandelion who's pretty emotionally robust or you're an orchid and you need a very different kind of parenting if your brain is more that way inclined and there's such a diversity in the neurological development of teenagers and we often just lump them all in together and I thought it worth bearing in mind what might be happening I certainly my two eldest daughters are so different and they're only 16 months apart but they're so, so different. And what has worked in terms of, you know, being forceful, setting boundaries with one doesn't really work with the others. One of my daughters has her emotions are much closer to the surface. She, is, she has a different way of working things out and a different way of looking at things. And I just think you, it's always worth as a parent really stepping back and understanding what's going on in their brains while you're trying to get them to do logical things or why you you know when they do something really ridiculous or they, they stay out late and they come back and it's a nightmare then that is not the time to be talking to them about it I learned that fairly quickly you know their brain can't process all of that as you're shouting at them and, and fearful for them you've got to wait 24 hours while their subconscious process because the, the teenage conscience actually is much more powerful and I thought it just takes a few hours to kick in so you expect them to feel bad about what's happened or what you've been through together actually they won't for a while that won't that bit of processing doesn't happen for about 24 hours so all these little things I just thought if we could step back as parents while we're going through that and think about what's going on with their brain that would probably make it slightly more harmonious. Now, you know, obviously it's hard in the heat of the moment, but it really did make me much more patient as a parent when I learned out what was happening neurologically with them. I think that is absolutely fascinating and I can really relate to that. And I've had difficult conversations with all of my children at, at different times. I mean, I've got one 11 who's yet to be a teen and I can, I guess that's all coming, but, but, but my others, you know, the next one, the next youngest is 19. So he's nearly out of teenage years, but very often we will in the past have had a bit of a blow up over something, you know, relatively trivial, you know, tidying rooms or coming back later than expected or losing something and they haven't responded well to my ire and yet the next day there is a lot of contrition and hugging and oh mum I'm you know I'm so sorry about last night and I, I'd never realized that actually there is a physiological reaction going on in their brains and that they are processing this and it's a bit of a, a fuzz at the time, but then they do process it and they realize actually that wasn't the right way to behave or that was an issue. 
um, and they come back for the hug and the and the reconciliation. And I guess if we can understand that that's what's going to happen more than likely, we can go to bed ourselves feeling happier and a bit more content, thinking actually, do you know what? That's a neurological pathway. Those neurons will have connected in the morning, and we can have a hug and and make up. That's hugely helpful to know that. It's great. Well, I do. I think the other thing that came up a lot, I used to get a huge post bag at the Sunday Times from mums, really cross about the mess, you know, and I can't stress enough, I have a son and two daughters, the mess, if you've got a 12, 13 year old, I mean, unless it's a miracle, because we can't lump all teenagers together, but the mess is extraordinary. The bedroom mess is, is quite something, you know, I think I need a biohazard suit on before I go in. It was a real shock to me. I just thought, how could I have raised such horrifically mucky children? It's just, but actually, when I talked to the therapist and, and the neuroscientists, the, the, the scientists were saying, but they can't see it. So you can see it, but they really can't see it. So it is probably the smallest thing that you should have any worries over because it really isn't, in their mind, they are not looking at it thinking, look at this giant mess. They're not seeing it in the way. It's not making them itchy like it's making you itchy or heave. <laughs> and I have to say, though, my girls are much messier than uh, my son. I, I don't know whether that's uh, generally, I'm, a lot of mums have told me that. But the mess is, is extraordinary. And lots of parents were getting really frustrated and cross. And in America, I was noticing on Facebook groups, people were taking the doors off to their teenagers' rooms to shame them into tidying up. Up. And really, it's it's really it's their very very private space. And what I also learnt um, is what they're doing is building their identity, and that's the most enormous thing a human being can do. And you're expecting them to tidy their room while they're building their new identity to take into the world as human beings. It's a really big ask. So what, why would that be important to you? Helping them build their identity is much more important. Helping them become more resilient is much more important. And I really learned to step away from the small stuff uh, because it's a surprise. I think it's a surprise as a parent. You're an adult. You think they should put towels away. They should bring cups down. They should want to wear clean clothes. But, you know, these are the things that may not be their priority for them. That That's fascinating. And, you know, I think always you know, that I, I walk into my, my children's bedrooms very often and, you know, you can't see it that there's any carpet there at all because it's just completely covered in everything. And I think, you know, gosh, I was never like that. You know, my my bedroom at home was never like that. But maybe it was. Maybe I just couldn't see it at the time. And thinking back, you know, that's how it was. And and then I just kind of grew up and learned how to tidy up. I should actually say, just just very quickly to anybody listening, that I am recording this in Kenya um, and you are in the UK. And we are recording at a time when the frogs come out. So if you can hear weird, croaky, squeaky noises in the background, that that is my soundtrack at the moment of what's going on. It's It's not kind of teenagers wailing in the background it's um it's the frogs <laughs> thinking about your, your your column and your writing how have your children actually responded to to your writing about parenting for a living has, has that brought any challenges do they do they read what you write do they not care about it do they say oh mom I wish you'd stop writing about us well I, it's very interesting this because I was on a quite a big learning curve when they were little I talked about them quite a bit I think um, and then 
When I was at the Sunday Times, sort of five years ago when I started, I did an interview with Steve Bidolf, who wrote Raising Boys and has since written Raising Girls. He's kind of one of the world's leading childcare uh, psychotherapists. I mean, he, he is extraordinary. And before the interview, he said he wanted to have a chat with me. And we uh, sat down and had a long chat. He said, this is too much. You are giving away too much. Um, they can't possibly have informed consent at this age to give it away. And it really made me think about it. I mean, the, the column that I'd written before then stopped when they were about uh, I think when uh, they were about seven, I think, at uh, the eldest. I mean, I never I, I never put pictures of them anyway. That, that was the agreement. There was never any pictures of them. Um, and I did everything out of time and fudged details so that they couldn't be identified and their schools couldn't be identified, etc. But I undoubtedly gave too much away. Um, and then I learnt a lot from that. And actually, anything that's in the book, uh, the children have read, the girls, the elder girls have read. And I don't really give... Uh, specific personal details away all the stories are told some are mine some are friends you know you wouldn't really know whose children they are they're, they're detailed but you don't know some are my children some are not so you you wouldn't be able to tell that there's a couple of pages that are very specific to one of my girls and it's they're funny um and she was very happy about that but yes it undoubtedly I mean my job is journalism everything I do embarrasses them uh frankly you know when I used to give talks or you know present things and I did some big stuff at the South Bank and stuff like that, that was embarrassing for them as well. I mean, I think you yes. have to understand <laughs> they are, they, they do think you're an idiot. So anything you do is extremely embarrassing. Um, but any details given away um, were asked for and approved for this book. And I think if you look at my social media, there are no pictures. You, you know, I think we did one photo shoot for the um, Sunday Times when I started, which they seemed happy about and they were fine about. But I've tried to make it hopeful and helpful. The reason I do it is because I felt quite lonely sometimes when I was looking after teenage girls. There's so many groups and clubs when you've got young babies and when you have teenagers, there's a lot you can't discuss because it is so private to them. So you can't really even share it with your friends. And it is lonely time. And I wish I'd had a book saying, you know, you're doing okay. We're all going through this. You're not the worst mum in the world. You're not sat on the stairs crying your eyes out on your own. All of us are doing this. Um, you know, this is a massive learning curve parenting. Every child is kind of an experiment in many ways because the, the the genetics of each child is so different as, as well. You can't possibly apply the rules of one to the others. So I did feel incredibly lonely. And, you know, my journalism has always been about being helpful and practical and, and funny at the same time. So I kind of thought, you know, it would be useful to do this and they would be comfortable with it. It's more difficult as, as teenagers, as I say, but um, I think I've trodden the line OK, but only because of the amazing advice from Steve Bidoff. That is really interesting. And I very much respect what you say there about informed consent. And it's interesting. I have two children from my first marriage who are now 31 and 29. And when they were small, it, the world was a very different place. Social media didn't exist. You know, I had a TV show which they came on to. They were part of. They used to stand on stools in the kitchen and cook with me. And I didn't ever really think about exposing them. Um, and then I went through a divorce and, you know, ended up on the front page of the Daily Mail and all of that and, and was then really aware that I had put my children in the spotlight. And then years later, when I remarried and had more children, I have made the decision very, very early on that they were never going to appear. And even now, my, my older children, who are my middle ones, who are 19 and 21, they've only recently made it 
onto my Instagram because when they got to 18, I said to them, okay, you're adult now, technically. That's legally, informed you know, consent, uh, yeah. do, do you want to be on my social media? Because if you do, then I can include you where it's relevant and interesting and, and relates to whatever I'm talking about. But I, I do get concerned and feel a level of unease sometimes when I see children in the media who are, you know, put up by their parents. And I think maybe parents unwittingly, because it's lovely to share, you know, lovely family pics and all of that, but your children haven't actually agreed to that. And how are they going to feel? You know, we tend to forget those pictures are up forever. They can forever be found and, and linked to them. And, you know, they're not props of, of, of my business or my Instagram. I don't need to have pics of, of my young children there and I think that's perhaps a point that's worth mentioning to people who perhaps don't really think that there's any harm in it and that in the future how do those children then regain their privacy if they want it? I think that's really important point to make because um, when I had my first two daughters they there weren't mobile phones um, but the next two children did there were mobile phones. So, and I, I I do a lot in the book around this because, you know, we were, we set very firm boundaries around phone use. Um, and they really, for, I think probably for 18 months to two years were absolutely furious with me. I take the phone away at nine o'clock at night. It's, we call it a digital sunset. Nobody has their phones in their rooms at night. And I felt very strongly about that because I'd done so much research and because I'd interviewed so many people, you know, we're still on a learning curve with it and how social media affects one child is very different from how social media affects another child. So from my point of view, what I decided was what was right for our family, but I did learn and I spent a lot of time talking to friends of mine who have big social media followings about informed consent you know it lasts forever do they want that to come up when someone's googling them when they're interviewing them for a job and what's what what are you getting from putting it out there I mean it's not just Instagram and and Twitter it's Facebook as well and I know you know certainly sharing stuff across the family in when they hit their teenage years privacy is probably the number one most important thing forming their identity protecting themselves is so so important and you may say you know oh don't be so ridiculous just you know a picture of you being happy on holiday you know I, and my children don't like me to put any pictures on our private facebook um they don't like it it upsets them so i don't do it and i know a lot of parents who have decided that they will they do still want to do that because obviously it's nice to share pictures but it's a it's a difficult area and I think probably we have to respect our you know my living is journalism and writing about me and my experience as as a woman I've got a big Gen X following because I've edited those magazines and that community is around me so in my head I'm thinking is this relevant and will it be helpful to them but you know we are navigating such a different time um, from the time just one generation before us the the social media and how your children remain resilient and how they curate it so they feel better about themselves not worse about themselves and how they protect their privacy there and how they stop being you know possibly approached by people they shouldn't be approached by is really really important we have uh, when we allowed our second two children to have their telephones we said you will we need to have the passwords to them and you will never have them on your own 
uh, in your in your room. That's not we aren't comfortable with that. You know, there's no sort of smoking gun though. Actually, I talked to a lot of people about social media that points to it directly having a, an appalling negative effect on a developing teenage brain. It's really about the context in which it is used. So you need to be able as a parent to kind of know what what they're looking at. So you need to be able to help them curate what they're looking at. You need to be able to help them set privacy settings. And undoubtedly, the big tech companies should absolutely be doing more to protect adolescents. But, you know, if children are looking at phones in their room on their own, I would be very worried about that as a parent, knowing what I know and from the research I've done. I think that is very interesting. And I remember interviewing an American guy called Andy Crouch about screen time. This was a few years ago, and he'd written a similar book saying, exactly the same thing and he said there are no screens in bedrooms you know the children do not have their own tvs laptops phones whatever they don't take the connectivity into their room and it's partly to protect them well mostly to protect them um and to keep their bedroom a sanctuary because uh, as we've seen there have been awful cases of bullying and trolling and all sorts that that you know you you're taking with you under your sheets and blankets in your bed you know that should be your your refuge and your safe space and if people know that they can get you and i think also it gives younger people the ability to say to their friends, you know, I'm really sorry, but I can't stay up all night on, you know, WhatsApp or Snapchat or whatever it is, because I don't have my phone. And I think other kids will go, oh, well, that's a shame, isn't it? You know, um, but that's it. You know, you've you've kind of taken that that decision making away from them, which is often a relief in some cases. I mean, I know there was a big struggle. I mean, my kids used to sneak their phones and their laptops into their bedrooms all the time. Uh, and and it, and it was a real battle and now now they they do have them and and you know what can you say when I think they probably started having their phones in their rooms maybe when they were you know sort of like 16 plus we kind of we gave up but certainly with the younger ones and and my youngest doesn't have a phone at all he feels unbelievably excluded and left out and he's extremely miffed and annoyed that he is as he sees it the only one in the family without a phone but We've said, well, the others didn't have them till they were teenagers, until they were 13. And I'm afraid that's going to go for you as well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's being, in, being the adult in the relationship, the one... So I, the, there's only two things of the book I, you know, because you've got to take it as guidance. It may work for you, it may not. But the two things I'm very adamant about because of the people I'd interviewed was no phones in, in your room. <laughs> it simply don't allow that to happen. And the other thing was you, you can't be your child's best friend or your teenager's best friend. There's a kind of feeling that, you know, they're, they're suddenly adults. You can have great conversations with them. You can do adult things together. Perhaps there's a friendship there, but there isn't. You have to be setting boundaries and you have to be, there has to be consequences when boundaries are broken and you're the adult. And no matter how awful that is, and we really went through an awful time with our girls when we stopped them having their phones in their room and they accused us of, you know, isolating them from their friends, making them pariahs at school, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I just kept presenting the research and saying, I, this is, this is, you know, we don't know how it affects your brain yet. And I think it's back to the dandelion and the orchids, you know, for, for one child looking at things can just sort of block anything they don't want to see and quite happily put the phone down and walk away. But another child might have a more, maybe more neurodiverse, maybe may have a more fragile neurology going on, and it might really affect them in a completely different way. And you don't really know that as they're developing. So I think, you know, to be their best friend and to not set boundaries and to not have consequences if these boundaries are broken is, is a really dangerous way of parenting. Actually, um, Lisa Damour, who's a D-A-M-O-U-R, she's an American, leading American uh, psychotherapist who works in schools and has a column in the New York Times, really taught me about that. You have to be you have to stay firm around um, anything she does. Actually, I would really advise listeners to look at. You have to stay firm around the boundaries because children who don't have boundaries feel really unsafe because you're sort of saying to them, I don't really care enough about you to set boundaries. I don't mind. I'd rather be your friend than keep you safe. And as you say, often they want you to set boundaries because they want to be able to say to their friends, oh, my mum won't let me do that or my parents won't let me go to that party, which they may not have wanted to go to anyway in the first place. Um, I, I, we always used to say to our girls, if you, if you get somewhere and you don't enjoy it and you're a bit worried or, or scared, but you you know, just, just, just say, my mum's told me I've got to come home now. So use us as the backup for the safety. But children without boundaries are really, really worried about how things will be and how they can navigate their day. And I think once I learned that, I thought, well, you know, I'll just put up with the awful <laughs> reaction to me and the, the hatred that seems to go on and the death stares and the fury, because I know that ultimately I'm making them feel safe. And that's kind of my job as a parent. 
That is such a good point. And I think very often we do want to just be our child's best friend. And I have had it said to me before that your children will hopefully have many, many friends, but they will only have you as a parent. And that is your job, you know, that's, that, that is your role. And hopefully you will be very friendly and, and great friends as part of it. But ultimately, you know, you, you are the parent and saying no is, is hard. And, and one of the things, another thing that I learned quite early on from, again, like you talking to great experts in this area is that no, once you say no, it is no. It's it's not negotiable. So there's no point in wheedling and whining and cajoling until I change my mind and say yes, because then you just set yourself up for a lifetime of that. They think, well, OK, she said no, but we know that if we carry on for however long, you know, 20 minutes, two days, however long it is, eventually she's going to say yes. So now, you know, if I say no and, you know, one of my children will kick off, you know, one of the others will say what part of no don't you understand you know that no means no and that is the final decision and let's get on with life and talk about something else because I'm afraid a no is a no it's not a maybe and and it's very difficult because if you say no and then change your mind tomorrow then if you say you know I love you and I care for you but could you you know their thinking is so fragile and it's changing all the time could you then tomorrow be thinking oh I don't quite love you today can't if you if you say no and then change your mind about one thing that you were so firm about it completely undermines their faith in all the other good bits of you so that's what I mean also about picking your battles if you say no you you have to be prepared to stay with the no so and both of you have to be if you're um, parenting uh, co-parenting you both have to be prepared to stick with the no and I know certainly a lot of mums found it slightly tricky with dads who who kind of buckle under the <laughs> horror of teenage girls tormenting them <laughs> and and you have to agree in advance and communicate that this no will mean and I think it's so hard if you're a single parent to say no and stick because you you are then at home on your own in the evening being ignored while all sorts of terrible door slamming and huffing and puffing and horribleness is happening around you but pick the things therefore that you will say no to and again it's not about a tidy room or towels left on the floor or any of that it's no to things I think will make you it put you your safety at risk or, or make you unhappy ultimately and I think you know that's the that's as we both said if you're the parent you're the parent you kind of signed up for that and it's not easy it's really not easy it's very upsetting and you know I think in in when you're children are teenagers and you're going through midlife all those issues as well and you've got lots of other things going on it's really hard to say no sometimes but you know take that moment step back big deep breath and then say no and then stick with it um one of the things I did learn which I thought was interesting in the boundary setting because just saying a hard no is quite tough for for kids what what a lot of teenagers feel is that you aren't listening to them so you're saying no without listening to their arguments so I learned a lot about active listening which is used in in therapy with adolescents and, and often with adolescents in extreme situations so you sit and listen to them tell you you don't reflect back with your own experience you don't tell them what you think you don't give them advice you just sit and listen 
to what they are saying to you and you absorb that and just reflect back by saying, so you feel this, so you think this, so you believe this, so this has happened to you. Am I, you know, I'm clarifying what's happened to you. So a bit of that can settle the, the, them down a bit, I think, with, with teenagers. If you're actively listening, you say, well, I've considered all the things you've said, but, you know, <laughs> I'm still saying no here. That is often less um, difficult to deal with for them and for you than a hard no on that point. And kids who feel listened to um, often process things um, more calmly because your brain can process things much, much better when you're not under stress. Uh, when you're under stress, you can sometimes not process it, get yourself into a fearful, horrific situation. And then that's the memory that gets stamped on on in the as a template. That's the neurology happening again there. And this bad memory, stressful thing gets stamped and it, it stays in the brain and this moment rests there for quite a long time. If you can calmly, actively listen to them without offering your experience back or explaining what you think, then you can. they can start setting a kind of memory that's in a much calmer place. And, and they might disagree with you, might be very cross and sulky, etc. But it, it's a better way of doing it if you can get yourself into that place. I think that's extremely good advice. And you talk there about the things that are related to the serious things in life, the the things where it really matters for their safety and their well-being. So let's talk about the things that we may really have to say no to for, for safety's sake, things like drink, smoking, vaping, etc., and, and teens will experiment with all sorts of things that, frankly, we would rather they didn't. Um, what is your advice to parents? What balance do you strike between giving teens the freedom to grow and at the same time keeping them safe? I think it's really hard. It's very hard, particularly for single mums and dads, I think, doing this kind of stuff on their own. But there has to be a line in the sand. We, you know, the things that you felt or you feel as a parent are absolutely no, no, have to be no, no. And it might be drink. Um, it might be staying overnight at boyfriends. It might be vaping. It, you need to educate yourself around what you think might be going on, but not panic because that's the big thing. Once panic sets in, nobody can um, process anything and it becomes really scary. So you need to set the boundaries and there have to be consequences. If you if you come home and you're really drunk, then this is what you won't be able to go next week. And then you have to stick to those consequences. Our boundaries were we knew they were going to experiment their children growing up in inner city we live in westminster they're you know they're in a big big they have access straight into london straight into the center of london um after school so we knew they were gonna i mean i'm not saying it doesn't happen i mean i grew up in uh, cornwall in the middle of uh, nowhere and actually probably experienced the same kind of exposed to the same kind of things that my kids were but they're, they i couldn't get around as easily so we had a very specific thing you know we we my line in the sand was i have to know when you are coming home and that's it. That's, you know, for me, you have to have your keys and I have to know when you are coming home and I need to know where you are going. So I need the postcode and I need the address. I need you very specifically to tell me that because we always felt if we knew where they were, we could get to them if there was an issue. If you're very forthright and you, you your, your, your boundaries are very hard and harsh, then sometimes uh, teenagers may just not talk to you. And that's, again, we feared that if we lost communication, 
then they would turn to other people less reliable, less able to risk assess um, and for help. And we really needed them to turn to us. So we, you know, we obviously all of us, and I'm sure you have has been through times when our teenagers have, have come home and they haven't been in the best place or state. Um, but it, what you're looking for is, is, is change. You know, you know, they're going to experiment, but I don't think parents should get overtly obsessed and worried and panicky about this. And, and what I talked to some really brilliant addiction specialists actually is what you're looking for is changes in their normal behavior. So if their if their normal behavior suddenly changes and they become withdrawn instead of extra, things like that, then then perhaps things have gone too far, things have changed, they're in a place um, that you aren't comfortable with. But, you know, I think we had to realize that you've really got to let go and they've really got to experience a lot of stuff themselves because they need to build a little bit of their own resilience so that they can learn when to say no. I mean, my concern for my girls has always been, you know, what has happened in the last couple of years with the kind of, after the death of Sarah Everard, this, I had no idea they were experiencing such kind of physical male sexuality around them in the way uh, that it was. And we had a long chat about that. But I just listened, really. I didn't make any judgments or criticisms. You know, they were telling me what was happening at parties. And I was listening with interest, actually, to how they navigated it and how they worked out not to put themselves in positions where they were unsafe and how they looked after girls who they felt had put themselves in positions where they were unsafe. And I felt quite proud that they'd worked that out themselves, that they'd, you know, I didn't want them to have had to work that out, but I felt that they had worked a way of manoeuvring around it and situations that were actually more, much more dangerous than I thought they were experiencing. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed, we, we've not had anything too traumatic happened to this but I do know mums where you know it has happened but I think you know you can't keep them locked up can you Liz that's that's the thing you've got to let them out in the world and you have to think back to your own teenage years and how you learnt to navigate all of that. You're absolutely right and I think unfortunately you know we're so aware aren't we in the media of, of some of the really devastating things that that can happen um, what about drugs? What about the conversations that you have with with your teens? Because research shows, for example, that smoking cigarettes is on the decline, but that drug use in teenage girls particularly is on the up. So how have you managed to approach those conversations with your teens? Well, the last thing they want to hear about is, you know, any experiences of your own teenage years or things like that. They don't want to hear about catastrophizing either they don't want you to be saying if you start vaping then I'm going to be you know collecting you from a heroin den with Keith Richards or anything like that so you can't you can't catastrophize and over panic in front of them I think what we did was rely on the school um, also to their educators possible and look at you know we would uh, when schools were giving talks and things we would then talk to them in within a day or so around that saying what did you learn what do you think you know to try and keep the conversation open. I, I think for me, it's more worrying about a habit forming. So when I spoke to the therapists uh, around drugs, I think we probably have to accept many teenagers, probably most teenagers will try something that you wouldn't want them to try. So, um, But the, it's about habits forming and things becoming a crutch and the availability um, of something and you constantly being curious and aware of what they're going through without coming down on them like a ton of bricks about everything. Again, with things like drugs, it is that 24-hour 
processing when if your teenager comes in i remember one of the uh, mandy salagari who runs a clinic um she's a former addict and runs a clinic for parents um helping children with addiction issues she was saying it, it takes if something has happened it takes 24 hours for them to process what's happened what they've been through and there's no point asking them or you know quizzing them when they get in you've got to wait a while and talk to them the next day about what might have happened it really is you know, the, my book is for the less extreme um, issues in life that you encounter with an adolescent. But I think you it's quite difficult to get help if you feel that your children have been drawn down um, a route you don't want them to. But if you can just be able to listen and just to be there, I think, as well. So you really do notice patterns and when things change and how they are and how they are the next day, I think. And then you do really probably need to seek professional help if you feel that something has become a habit. Now, of course, we're now thankfully coming out of pandemic years and a lockdown, and it's dramatically affected the mental health of so many young people who have really been at such the sharp end of, of giving up on school, education, social, forming friendships, you know, all of those relationships that happen in the early years. Uh, it's such a formative time to have been locked away inside. What's your advice here? Do you cover much of that in the book for parents of teens who have been really struggling with their mental health? I mean, even things like general day-to-day -day anxiety, everybody's cortisol levels has been so stretched to the max. And that's we've seen a huge rise in things like eating disorders in both girls and boys. You know, what what would your approach be to helping kids who've been really struggling with their mental health generally? Yeah, I think it's I mean, I don't like to think of the panic um, of the headlines because they're always huge headlines, this kind of epidemic of bad, poor mental health, particularly among um, teenage girls. But I do think the pandemic has absolutely escalated this. I do think many, many more young people are struggling than we thought. And I think they're, thankfully, we're beginning to talk about it. And there are a lot of charities and helplines. I work with Shout, um, the crisis text line, uh, which I did some, I wrote a big feature on them and, and trained to be a volunteer alongside them. And so I listened, I, I took the text and I spent um, Friday nights hearing awful stories of teenagers in terrible places. And certainly the pandemic has escalated that. But, you know, in the less extreme situations, and I know this from my own children, it has been a pretty upsetting time. You know, they've not been able to see their friends. They've had to try and explore everything themselves. I know my eldest had a pretty miserable first year at university, certainly when lockdown happened and she was locked in her room for six weeks and only saw two other people. It's not really how you start your university time, especially when she was doing a very practical um, degree as well. So I know it's affected them, but I do think they can talk about it. And we have to be clear that, you know, anxiety is a mental illness. It's a clinical diagnosis. What are those feelings anxiety or are those feelings sadness? Are those feelings stress? Are those feelings simply being overwhelmed? And I think we we often go straight to anxiety um, with our teenagers and then, then all our panic buttons go up, all the alarms go off. But actually, perhaps our teenagers and, you know, happiness is not a given um, for any human being at any age. Perhaps we need to sit alongside them more while they're down in, in, the, in the deep 
sad bit um, and allow them to feel those feelings. It's about trying to build that resilience in them. It's about, you know, it's a little bit about what they call pot plant parenting, isn't it? It's just being there more. Certainly when I spoke to Steve um, Bidolf about his book, Raising Girls, one of the things he had noted is that in our Western culture, pandemic or no pandemic, we are so, so busy. We kind of have very little time to listen to our children. Sometimes we're doing our jobs, we're taking them to activities. I think the good thing about the pandemic, and we noticed that, is we just dropped all the activities. We just did the spending time. You know, no teenager wants to go for a walk, but unfortunately, we had to do quite a lot of walks in the pandemic. And that's actually brought us close. And there's a real belief among therapists that the small rituals of family life, playing games, having cups of tea, watching telly, it sounds so ineffective, but actually those are the things that build a connection. And if your teenager has a connection with you, even when they're in the worst of times, they are leaning against something. They have something around them that they feel will help them and it's not as hopeless. And that connection can be you writing notes to them if they don't want to come and talk to you. But it's not about it fixing them. You know, that there's a real feeling as well of we should fix them if they are uh, enduring terrible mental health. We, we do need to support them. And some, some people may need practical health from experts, but sometimes we just need them to allow, feel those feelings and we're not going to fix it for them. They're going to have to go through it and come out the other side themselves. And it's it's really sad. And I think I, we get it a lot on our postcards from midlife Facebook group with lots of mums asking, how can I make my child feel less stressed? You know, so this focus on exams is a real killer for teenage girls as well, constantly hoping that they will get the highest grades that they will achieve. And, and they often put this pressure on themselves. I, I see it with a lot of parents. Though. If we can back away from that, perhaps, that would make their lives. And, and the other thing that is so important, and we know 40% of teenage girls drop out of sport um, in the adolescent years because they're just not comfortable. Their bodies, they don't feel comfortable doing it. They feel judged by, actually, by other girls. Um, I work with women in sport as well, a charity around this. And if we could keep them doing things like sport, but not a, in a competitive way, but in a more outdoors active fresh airway then that would be phenomenally helpful and if schools could be way more helpful than they are with teenage girls around sport that would really really boost mental health mm. uh, it's so great to finish I think on some positivity there and, and some positive notes and you're so right when I think about some of the happiest times I have with with my children in the past and ongoing it is that cup of tea standing in the kitchen together. It is that moment when there's nothing on the telly, so let's get out some cards or let's sit and do a jigsaw together on a Sunday afternoon. And we might not even be talking to each other, but we're sitting alongside and we're just sharing a moment or, as you say, going out for a walk. It seems to be almost at the bottom line is, is time that we invest a little bit of time and we give our children a sense of worth by saying to them, it can be unspoken, but I give you my time, you are worthy, you are worth more than my social media scrolling, this email chain that I have to finish, you know, this piece of work or, you know, this conversation with another friend, you are worth my time and I'm actually going to spend those 10 minutes or hopefully more having a cup of tea having a chat about something completely inconsequential but just being there just just being there for them yeah I think parents often want a really firm five point to-do list on how to make it all better and actually 
being curious about them as they form their new identity, leaning into them without asking anything of them is a really important part of parenting. And it feels when I advise this, because I've spoken to so many experts who said it, people will say to me, oh, yes, but, but what else can I do? Should I be taking her out more? Should I be doing this? Should I get her this? Or should I enroll her in this? And No, you shouldn't. You should just be floating around in the background while she is there. You should just be looking at how sad and upset she is about something and just offering her a cup of tea rather than saying, what can we do? Can we solve this? What's the solution here? That she doesn't, it feels so ineffectual. It really does. But every therapist, even those working in, in with children going through extreme situations have said time with their parents and it is their parents, their, their mums or their dads or their caregivers, the most important adults in their life. That is almost the biggest game changer and you really don't have to be doing anything in that time you just have to be saying I'm so curious about you I love you so much I will just be here and that for me feels like it's an easy thing to do in life um, but you do have to mindfully every day make sure you put that into your day I think. Lorraine, I think that's such a great and positive note to end on. Thank you so much. I've learned a huge amount and hopefully that the parenting of my last child will be somewhat better moving into teenage <laughs> years, having got the benefit of your wisdom. Thank you very much indeed for Thank being with us Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. It's been brilliant. And many thanks to Lorraine. And her book, again, well worth a read, is called Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 things only mothers of teenage girls will know. Well, that's just about it for this week. Don't forget that we have just introduced a special pay-as-you-go magazine subscription for Liz Our Wellbeing, which helps ease the cost of our bi-monthly read. Currently available for those listening in real time with a very special subscription offer, which gets you four, yes, four free copies of this magnificent publication and free UK PMP. What a steal. And talking of steals, don't forget to check out the Liz Loves page on the LizOurWellbeing.com website for a very wide range of Liz Loves discounts to help with the budget. Every little helps, as they say. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.